are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And we are in chapter 8. Together, and tonight we're reading verses 1 through 5. You'll find this on page 1032 of the Pew Bible. We're at chapter 8 of the book of Revelation, and we're going to be reading together those first five verses. Hear the word of God. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Well, the first five verses of chapter 8 really serve as a transition From the seven seals to the seven trumpets, they're a little bit like a fabric of tapestry or interlocking links of a chain, as we mentioned last time. In verse 2, the trumpets are introduced and then picked up again later in verse 6. And we're told that these seven trumpets are entrusted to the care of seven angels. Not the trumpets of festal gathering or the royal proclamation or the solemn assembly. Rather, we believe, as we'll find later on, these are the horns of war. And as we'll see, they warn of approaching judgment and divine wrath. In forewarning the world of the coming judgments, God is actually extending his mercy. And it shines brightly. He tells them of the judgment to come before it comes so they can repent. Because as he tells Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. These seven archangels are appointed as executioners of God's divine fury. They they are the most exalted and glorious of all the creatures that God has made, the archangels. They're high in rank and they're mighty in power. They're excelling in knowledge and they are perfect in holiness. They far surpass you and I in almost every way. They're bodiless, immortal spirits. And yet, what's fascinating to me is that we are high above them in birth, position, and privilege as joint heirs of Christ. That's why they're sent out by God as ministering spirits for the sake of the heirs of salvation. They care for God's adopted children. The psalmist explicitly says so in Psalm 91. He'll command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
As bodyguards of the royal seed, they'll attend all the elect. And so they stand in awe of the gospel. They behold it in wonder. And they watch with breathless amazement what takes place in these services of worship. You might think otherwise, but that's what Scripture teaches. Peter says, the things announced to you are things into which angels long to look. The heavenly rulers learn about the gospel through the ministry of the church and the lives of the saints. These exalted creatures whom God appoints over kingdoms and nations of the world learn from what happens in and is done by the church. That staggers the imagination. Something that we deem so regular, so almost common. Public worship is far more important than some people think. At least to the angels it is. You can imagine an angel saying to one of his colleagues, why would anybody have sent themselves from public worship? They're sent out by God to execute his commandments and to praise his name, and they fulfill at least five functions. Angels. First, they're ministers of revelation as they help make known God's will and the word. Hebrews 2 speaks of the law being declared by angels, which proved to be reliable. So somehow God enlisted the angels to convey the law through Moses at Mount Sinai. And he'll again employ the angels to see everyone who fails to conform to that law. Function number two, they're ministers of protection as they guard and preserve the saints from all sorts of dangers. You remember Elisha, who was surrounded by the Syrian army, and his frightened servant said, Alas, my master. And he obviously was concerned and frightened by such a formidable military force. And then Elisha says, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant's eyes were opened to see that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Angels rescued Lot from the destruction of Sodom. Angels preserved Daniel from the pit of the lions. And angels delivered Peter from the prison of the Romans. John Patton, whom you might recognize, was a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands. One night, as the story goes, and he's the one who told it, hostile natives surrounded the mission station, intent on burning out the Pattons and killing them. Patton and his wife prayed during the terror-filled night that God would deliver them. When daylight came, they were amazed to see that their attackers had left. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. And remembering what happened, Patton asked the chief what had kept him from burning down the house and killing him and his wife. The chief replied in surprise, Who are all those men with you? Patton knew of no men being present. But the chief said he was afraid to attack because he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. True story. The ministry of angels is a source of great comfort, and it's meant to be. These superior beings who serve far inferior beings with all their might, 
And as guardian angels, they provide special care to the objects of God's love. I think this is what Jesus means in Matthew 18. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And I don't believe, as some contend, that that possessive pronoun is meaningless. The saints, all saints, especially little ones, have angels that are in some sense theirs. Guardian angels. Third, it's not just revelation, not just protection. They function as ministers of confirmation as they witness our worship and the service of the saints. Paul parallels what happens in the Roman Colosseum to the life of the church. Isn't that interesting? He says, we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. 1 Corinthians 4.9. He says the Christian lives his life before this auspicious assembly in heaven. They're watching. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, Timothy, to keep these rules. 1 Timothy 5.21. And he says the wife, in some sense, is to wear a symbol of authority. Why? Because of the angels. They witness and they confirm the character and the conduct of the disciples of Christ. So they serve as ministers of revelation, as ministers of protection, as ministers of confirmation, and fourthly, as ministers of comfort, as they escort the souls of dying saints to heaven. Luke 16, Jesus tells a story about a rich man in Lazarus. And Lazarus suffered his entire life. And as he laid there in his sores with the dogs licking his wounds, he died. And it says he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the figure is that of a banquet, you know. Lazarus, who never had anything in life, he is seated at the place of honor next to Abraham, his side. Here is one who in life had not a friend. But in death, he was attended by angels. So angels ministered to us not only while we live, but also when we die. Luther said this, His body may have had no pallbearers, but angels carried his soul. What a marvelous thought. They bear us up in their hands on the great journey homeward when we go to heaven. So they're ministers of revelation, ministers of protection, ministers of confirmation, ministers of comfort, and finally and fifthly, they are ministers of justice. They execute God's wrath upon the evildoers. That's what we're told. The Son of Man will send his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so these angelic reapers are charged with gathering up all the weeds that are to be burned. The good, though good and evil dwell together in this world, at the judgment they're going to be parted. And the strong, swift, skillful angels will be faithful friends to the saints, but they will be holy enemies to the wicked. And so I think all of this rehearsing of angelology helps us understand more clearly the group of seven angels in John's vision. It says he saw seven angels who stand before God, 
What's interesting to me is that in Jewish apocalyptic writings, now these are not inspired, they're not God's word, but in Jewish apocalyptic, it refers to seven angels who serve in the presence of God. Each one of those angelic names listed in the apocalyptic writings ends with the generic name for God, El, Uriel, Raphael, Ragel, Michael, Serakel, Gabriel, Ramiel. So for whatever it's worth, Judaism identified these as seven archangels. And whether or not that's true, these seven are distinguished in the text from all the rest. Isn't it wonderful that God sends out his angels to minister to Christians? Does it not make manifest the glorious order of Christ's kingdom? That he's sovereign? You know what it says? Daniel 7, a thousand thousands, a million, served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's 100 million. Myriads of angels exist to honor Christ. And this is the purpose of all creatures. Because the Father has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son. And these angels are employed in restraining and tormenting the devil and his hordes. You remember how the angel said to Daniel, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. So in some way, angels preside over countries and states and they fight against devils. I don't understand it, but that's what it seems to suggest. And they provide us with an example of obedience, don't they? May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how important are the saints if the greatest creatures God has ever made are sent as ministers to us? I think God reveals his love and his care for the church in dispatching these for the sake of Christ. In John 1, it says, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the man of God. So they take up our concerns to God and they bring down his blessing to the saints. And Christ, our Savior, directs them and he does so because he's pleased to do so. He takes pleasure in us. Love gave the Son to purchase us and love won't hesitate to send his angels to help us. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. The text goes on to tell us that these seven angels are distinguished as those who stand before God. And in that way, they enjoyed special honor. Only the most favored ever stood in the king's presence. We know that. Standing before God meant a constant readiness for being dispatched. 1 Kings 17, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He was ready to be dispatched. Literally, it means the Lord, the God of Israel, whose servant I am. Like soldiers standing at attention before the king, these angels stand before God ready to be dispatched at a moment's notice. 
and they're willing and able to execute God's commands and to help his children. Take note how the archangel introduced himself to Zechariah. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you. But while angels stand before God, Christians will sit next to God. Isn't that amazing? With Jesus, Paul says, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at the privilege. It's an amazing thing. In the Lord Jesus, every single believer enjoys the privilege of heavenly sonship. And the glorious angels, they stand as servants while you and I as Christians sit as joint heirs with Christ. Just as our children share in our estates, we share in Christ's inheritance. And as children of the King of Kings, we are the beneficiaries of eternal glory. Doesn't get any better than that. To Laodicea, Jesus said, the one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne. And so our reward is not merely salvation and life and joy, which in and of itself is amazing but also glory and honor and dominion. From being the lowest on earth, we're the scum of the earth, basically, Christians, to being made the highest in heaven, kings. We share in Christ's cross now. We wage war now. We deny ourselves now. But later we will share in his exaltation and in his victories and in his rewards and in his crown of life. That's the privilege of the Christian. The promise was given at a time when the world's ideal was to sit on a throne. The dream of exercising dominion captivated both Jew and Roman alike. The Jew dreamt of the coming Messiah who would rule the nations. The Romans swelled with pride as he looked at the empire that almost subdued the entire world. And yet those to whom it is granted, those to whom it is granted in the end, are the humble slaves of an obscure carpenter. How astonishing this seat of glory. We inherit the throne that was seen in chapter 4, do you remember? And Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? Not that we're sufficient in ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God. So to these seven angels who stand before God are given seven trumpets to sound. And once again, the Lord is drawing upon Old Testament imagery to reveal something very important. In the Old Testament, there are at least six distinct uses for the trumpet in the nation of Israel. A trumpet blast. First of all, the trumpet was used to summon people to worship and giving notification of the public assembly. Joel 2 says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, and gather the people. It's clear. The entire congregation was to assemble by the blast of a trumpet, and every Jew was obliged to join together with others at the sound of the horn. Secondly, it signaled the break of the camp and the continuance of Israel's march in the wilderness. No voice, think of it, no human voice could reach the entire nation but the blast of the trumpets could. Numbers 10, verse 6, an alarm is to be blown whenever they are to set out. At the first blast, Judah's squadron was to march. 
At the second blast, Reubens. At the third blast, Ephraims, and so on down the line with all 12 tribes. Third, the trumpet announced the enthronement of a king and proclaimed the start of his reign. It says in Kings, David said, Have Solomon my son ride on my own mule. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. And so there you have that loud trumpet blast giving public notice of the royal inauguration. It, meant a it was meant to be a thunderous expression of national joy and celebration. And fourth, it inaugurated the year of Jubilee, and it was heard only once every 50 years. It explains why Christ's coming, which is the ultimate Jubilee, is attended by a great blast of a horn. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. By that trumpet sound, all people will be convened to judgment and it announced the ultimate jubilee. And that's when you and I will be changed at the last trumpet. Fifth, it mustered the people for war, which is why it's called the war horn. When the Israelites went forth to battle, they were marshaled by a trumpet. Remember Ehud who blew and mustered the troops? And it must have thrilled that oppressed people, knowing that the army was finally gathering to throw off the yoke of the oppressor. For such a long time, they had heard no trumpets but those of their enemies. Sixth, and finally, it warned the people of danger, especially at the onset of judgment. Ezekiel 33, listen to this. If the watchman sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears does not take warning, his blood shall be on his own head. So you have the watchman appointed to sound the alarm by blowing the ram's horn. It would warn and prepare the people for impending judgment and thus prepared they might seek the face of God in repentance and prayer. Joel says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. And so obviously trumpets played a very significant role in the life of Israel. They summoned to worship. They signaled the break of camp. They announced the king. They inaugurated the jubilee. They mustered for war and they warned of danger. And the seven trumpets in the text I believe, seem to combine the war horn and the warning of the watchman. There may be a little bit of all the others involved, but these are at the forefront, the war horn. Because you know something, God has always given advance warning of his judgment. He's doing so now. Jesus says an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, every person, great and small, old and young, will appear before the judgment seat of God. Everyone will be summoned to give an account of what's been done in the body. And Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. Clearly then, nobody can stand before the Almighty with an account full of demerit. 
That's why Paul says in the Corinthians, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And though this warning is always given, it is a warning that's almost always despised, isn't it? How few people heed the trumpet sound. Few are those who escape the wrath. Those seven trumpets sound the alarm and they initiate the judgments of God. The first four usher in a series of natural disasters that affect one-third of the world. And they're intended to lead people to repentance as they see the judgment inflicted all around them. Like the ancient trumpet of Zion, they sound the alarm of imminent disaster. And then the last three trumpets signal the onset of the three great woes upon mankind. And those calamities will far exceed any misery the earth has ever endured so far. One commentator says the judgments of the trumpets increase in intensity as they progress, and I agree with him. And what this does is makes way for establishing once for all Christ's universal kingdom. If you were to look ahead at chapter 11, verse 15, you would read this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so how solemn and sobering should these affect all who hear them or see them? These trumpet sounds, as we'll find out in the ensuing sermons, should arouse a serious concern about the coming of God's judgments. They should awaken a grave and sincere repentance in light of those unprecedented terrors. And they should evoke heartfelt gratitude among all for being warned. Revelation 9 says the world scoffs. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And I want us to realize tonight, in closing, that we should recognize that even now the trumpets are sounding in the world, as I understand it. Disasters, diseases, deaths, all of them are God's forewarnings of final judgment. He warns not only by angelic trumpets, he also warns by ministerial trumpets. In the proclamation of the law and the gospel, we are forewarned of judgment. Isaiah 58, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. From pulpits everywhere, God warns through the word to flee from the wrath to come, and the world scoffs. The gospel call is sounded and sinners are invited to repent. They're told to believe and to be reconciled so that this is not a matter of indifference. And the stakes are high. And there should be a sense of urgency in every one of us. Colossians 1.28 Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You know, God's word is filled with heart-cheering truth to all who trust in Jesus Christ. There's no fear if you're a Christian. 
And yet how terrible is God's word to those who believe not Christ and obey not the gospel. It's unthinkable. It's appointed for each one of us to die and then to be judged by Christ, whether early or late, whether alone or in company, whether violently or in a bed of feathers. We all die. And our eternal destiny will be fixed, not by the manner of death, but by our relationship to Christ. John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Every deed is recorded. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So I ask you the question in closing, where do you stand in relationship to Jesus? How does it stand with your soul? May our gracious God reconcile you through the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth so that you may have no fear as the trumpets sound. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you first for the ministry of angels, these incredible creatures that serve such inferior beings to themselves and do so gladly. Secondly, we thank you for the privileges that we enjoy as Christians, that we need not fear the judgments to come, and we pray that everybody within the hearing of my voice be reconciled to Christ. And third, we thank you for Jesus himself, the reigning king, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb who was slain. May our praise bring delight before you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.